This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. This show is Radio Marinara. The station is 3RRR. My name is Dr Beach and I'm joined in the studio this morning by Cade Mills. We're running a very precise show this morning, are we, Dr. Page? We are, yes. down to the second. Fantastic. I can see that on the run sheet. Everything's down to the second. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a very professional outfit here. How are you going, Kate? Yeah, fantastic. I um, had the pleasure of going to the Australian Marine Science Association annual, annual general meeting on Wednesday night, it was, and we had a couple of 40-year... Well, 40 years member, so they got a life membership as a result of being a member of AMFSA for 40 years, but also contributing to marine science for 40 years. And one of them was John Lewis, who is a specialist in biofouling and marine pests and lives in Castlemaine and apparently listens to our show most weekends. So <laughs> if you're there, John, hello. And we Big have you in the to studio John. to celebrate 40 years worth of work. And the other's Jeff Westcott, who's also been on the show quite a few times with his involvement in sort of marine and coastal policy. And I snagged him to come in next week and talk to us about the VIAC, um, recent VIAC report. Excellent. I hear you also snagged somebody else to come in in about, well, to get on the horn at least in about 10 minutes' time. Well, that's it. He's delaying his surf so he can talk to us. So we've got Dr Craig Sherman from Deakin University talking about a very exciting new seagrass restoration project, which I'm fascinated with because seagrass restoration traditionally hasn't had much success so um he's been overseas and learnt a few lessons and putting them to good use i believe excellent and um second segment on the show is gonna be dave donnelly from dolphin research he's going to call us from um phillip island where they have a whale whale festival happening at the moment lots of whale spottings already so we'll hear directly about that from dave pretty excited to hear about that yeah and there's a few whales down there they've turned up i think dave booked them in and they've <laughs> decided to <laughs> swim on past for everyone that's down there or heading down there excellent and then um, to close the show, we're going to be talking to Martino Maleba. Um, he's at Monash University, formerly from James Cook University. And that's about a, a topic called daylight robbery. There was an article in the conversation. This is based on a, a research paper that the group at Monash published very recently, uh, talking about shading in Port Phillip Bay and the effect it might have on photosynthetic organisms, not getting their sun, um, not being able to do as much as what they do in life, which is pump out oxygen and sucking carbon dioxide and be primary producers and all of that. And instead we're getting lots of invertebrates, so animals which are not having to do photosynthesis and are better accommodated in the shade. But we're going to talk about the, the effects of that and how it's, yeah, it's kind of surprising to me when you read the paper how much shading there is and the effect of structures, human structures on that. Oh, and the way, I love the way in the article they use soccer pitches and elephants as comparisons for sizes and weights. So when any article does that, I'm on board because you can actually start to visualise and understand, and particularly, as you said, you're surprised how much shading there was. I think it ended up being 50 soccer pitches. God. Or p fields. Maybe a soccer pitch doesn't exist. It would be a soccer field, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be. Well, yeah. you obviously read the paper closer than I did because I don't remember that. So, you can <laughs> <laughs> so well done, Kate. You, you could take over the, um, you know, the interview with Martino. Anyway, that's the show coming up. Have you got any news before... Um I do. I've actually got some pretty exciting news. Incredible news that the ancient indigenous aquaculture site, Bojbim, has been added to the UNESCO World Heritage List. Indeed. That's, that's yes. fantastic. I did see that in the paper. And we had Dennis Rose on a few weeks ago talking mm -hmm. about his trip overseas to you know, basically be there for the announcement. And I'm pretty sure Anthur's trying to line him up for a chat 
to basically celebrate this and talk about the amount of hard work that's gone into it and you know celebrating the fact that there's been a what is it 6,600 years old at least they think um was it sustainable fishery yeah <laughs> so yeah, I think that's one of the oldest in the world. I've never been. Have you ever been down there to have a look at it? I have not, and I feel kind of guilty for it. It's just out the back of Portland. Don't Portland's feel guilty, Kay. There's no need to feel guilty. But you know, like yes, myself as well. I think we've got this wonderful thing there. Not seen it. Yes, um, but the other thing too, if the state government announced eight million dollars for a visitor centre and to actually help sort of interpret this and actually bring it to people and start to educate people about this amazing place. So yeah, big win, big win. Yeah. I also have some more whimsical news, if you'd like that. Something a bit whimsical is yes. good at seven minutes past nine. That's it. Well, whenever the Guinness Book of Records are involved, it tends to be whimsical, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but this one what was actually now? something while I was away. So I was in America and I saw they had the world's largest sub-aquatic cleanup. And so this was in Florida at a pier there. They had 633 divers in the water picking up trash. Um, the interesting thing was was the amount of stuff that they got out. So they got almost a ton of lead fishing weights. So I'm guessing that this pier that they... Well, I saw an image of the pier. It's quite a sort of tall pier. You often have those really large ones. But they're, obviously the fishermen are throwing a lot of money in the water with that. Yeah. And they also collected about 30 kilograms just of fishing line. So once they separated the two. Good. So, yeah. So they've set the world record. They beat the previous record of 614. And <laughs> 614 given, divers in the, one, in the water at once. 614 divers in the water at once. And given Victoria at a propensity of divers around Melbourne to do many a clean-up, I think the gauntlet's kind of been set. We set a world record. Divers set a world record, was it last year, where they had the most people, divers in the water as a chain, holding hands. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's more world records out there for them. Yeah, let's do it. Come on, we can't let the Floridians beat us. Uh, I'm going to do a bit of weather. Uh, you can hear the rustling of the paper, so it's from my um, very modern newspaper. Uh, it's going to be 18 degrees today. Cade, partly cloudy. The chance of fog in the southeast suburbs early morning. High chance of showers in the late afternoon and evening. Winds are going to be north to northeast, 20 to 30 kilometres. Uh, maybe a little bit of a sprinkling of rain later on. They're saying up to five millimetres. So if you're heading off to the, the footy like I am, um, make sure you get undercover or be prepared with your poncho or whatever you take. Uh, tomorrow's going to be 15 degrees, showers easing. 16 Tuesday, 16 Wednesday, down to 14 on Thursday with not too much rain, less than one millimetre throughout the week, according to the weather that I'm reading out of the Sunday age. Um, and the water, if you're heading out on the water, you'll be wanting to know about the tides at Point Lonsdale is going to be low tide. Well, it was low tide about half an hour ago at 8.30am, a 0.3 metre tide. And we're going to be catching up with Dr Surf later on, so I'm not going to bother reading out a surf report. All right, the guest that we have on the line has been rocking out to supergrass before talking about seagrass. We've got Dr Craig Sherman from Deakin University. How are you doing this morning, Craig? Good morning, Kate. Well, how are you guys going? Pretty good, Craig. Nice to, um, nice to talk to you, and thank you for um, agreeing to come on air with us again. And talk to us about the um, about the seagrasses. It's a pleasure, Dr. Beach. Good to hear from you again. <laughs> yeah. Now, we were saying earlier in the show that uh, restoring seagrasses has known to be quite difficult. I believe you've been on a trip overseas to try and learn a bit. What have you brought back with you? Yeah, seagrass has um, got a bit of a history of being quite difficult to uh, undertake. 
we haven't had uh, much success um, um, restoring seagrasses, not only here in Australia, but uh, typically around the world. There's only really been a few kind of successful cases, um, one in the, the US and um, a number of um, programs out in uh, Europe. And so um, we've started a new seagrass restoration program with Melbourne Water in Western Port Bay, where we've lost a, a significant amount of seagrass. Um, over the last few decades, well, since the 1950s and onwards. And um, we've started a new project with Melbourne Water to look at developing the tools and knowledge. But we're really coming from a, a very low base. We have very little experience. We've worked on seagrasses for quite a while now, but um, not really in the restoration um, space, just looking at their genetics and uh, reproductive biology and, and, and distribution. So instead of starting off and uh, making all the mistakes that... Um, many people have done in this field, we thought we'd go and uh, join forces with some groups in Europe who have been doing this for much uh, longer than we have. So there's some groups in Denmark and uh, the Netherlands in particular that we've been linking in with, and uh, they've been really excellent in um, facilitating knowledge transfer and teaching us the techniques and tools that they've been using out there and so that we can actually progress the, the restoration process here yeah, much more quickly. So we've still got a long way to go. This is still really the start of it. Um, but um, we just spent uh, about three weeks out there, uh, four weeks um, with two students, two PhD students, uh, which are funded by Melbourne Water and Deakin University. Uh, just spending time in the fjords in Denmark, planting seagrasses, but also the intertidal zones around the Walden Sea in, in the Netherlands. Just to step back a little bit, Western Port, you said there's been a lot of seagrass lost there. What has sort of happened historically and I guess now why is it the, why is now the time to start with this restoration? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Kate. Um, historically, um, there was significant losses of seagrass in Western Port Bay and we, we think it's mainly due to land use change really starting from the 1920s, 1930s through to the 1950s when there was um, significant land clearing, canalisation of the river systems, which resulted in a large amount of sediment actually uh, moving into Western Port Bay. And um, these are photosynthetic organisms. They require really good, clear uh, water conditions to be able to photosynthesise. And that sediment and also the nutrients that came along with those uh, sediment loads significantly reduced the light quality um, within Western Port Bay. And that's resulted in a significant loss during the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s of seagrass in that area. Estimated of about 17,000 hectares have been lost in Western Port Bay during that time. But uh, Melbourne Water and the, the Catchment Authority has been working quite hard over the last um, 20, 30 years to actually improve the inputs of the sediments and nutrients into Western Port Bay. And we've got to a stage that we think we're now ready um, in terms of the quality of um, the, the, the light environment and uh, the improvement in the conditions in Western Port Bay. Then we, we can start to look at um, seeing if we can assist um, the recovery of the seagrass within Western Port Bay. Uh, the seagrasses in some areas have started to recover. In some areas, we haven't seen any recovery where we would perhaps expect to see a recovery. So um, we're trying to understand um, what may be limiting um, the seagrass in terms of its recovery and how we can assist it. So now that you've sort of been overseas and you've you know, got all this new information and you've learned a few next... What are sort of the next steps? Because the project's only just beginning. So where do you start? 
Yeah, so th- th- we're taking a, 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 a multi-pronged uh, approach to this. Um, we have one of the students, Oliver Dolby, who will be um, doing a, a, a more GIS modelling-based approach to collect what is quite a data-rich um, um, set of information. So Western Port Bay, we're quite fortunate. We do have quite a lot of historical data sets in terms of um, that environment, in terms of the physical characteristics of Western Port, such as sediment loads and um, hydrodynamic models, uh, nutrient inputs, and that we can start integrating into these models to understand which sites are most suitable for restoration. And then we have another student, uh, Yimai Tan, who's going to be doing much more on-ground uh, approaches or, or work, looking at developing the tools and techniques. Um, seagrass, there's a whole range of different approaches for restoration. You can use shoot-based approaches where you take shoots from existing healthy meadows and transplant them into areas that you want to restore. But you can also collect the seeds and uh, plant out the seeds and germinate those seeds. And those seeds can either be planted directly into the field or uh, even germinated under nursery conditions and then subsequently transplanted into the field. We don't know which of these techniques are going to be the most suitable for Western Port. Uh, in different areas around the world where they've been doing restoration for longer than we have, and some areas shoot-based approaches work very well, such as Denmark, and other areas seed-based approaches work uh, much better. So um, we're still in that very early learning stages. Um, most of the things we're going to do are going to fail. We're prepared for that. Um, but we want to fail in a way that we learn something along the way and um, understand what might work in the future. Craig, this is really exciting. It's, it's, I'm getting this wonderful image of you as almost like marine horticulturists here. <laughs> You've got these little shoots of the, the seagrasses. And there, there are two... Uh, to my sort of bad knowledge of seagrasses, because they're not seaweeds, of course, they're just, you know, those lousy sort of flowering plants. Uh, there's, there's, t- there's two species, aren't there, that are up in Western Port? Is it, is it Amphibolus is one of them, and, or Amphibolus, and another one, Zostra? Is it both of those? Uh, yeah, there's a number of species. Um, there's uh, Amphibolus antarctica. Um, we, we, that's um, one uh, we're not working on, but there's two Zostra um, species. So, so there's... Um, that's the little strappy one, isn't it? It just looks like thin sort of straps. The it fronds. is. It looks like it actually looks like um, um, you know grass, just long blades of grass. Yeah. And we've got an intertidal species called Zostra mulleri, and a subtidal species called Heterozostra nigricollis. And um, we've lost both um, within uh, Western Port Bay, um, but we're going to be primarily, at least to start, with focusing on the intertidal species and uh, Zostra mulleri. And those are the areas that um, we'll be targeting first. It is challenging working in the intertidal zone uh, in terms of um, both logistics, but also the physical environment as the, the tide comes in and the waves and the water moves over those areas. We've got to find ways of making sure we can anchor and secure our transplants or our seeds within the areas and they don't get washed away. So thinking about artificial structures or uh, other processes that allow us to actually anchor and maintain our transplants or seeds in the areas is something we'll also be looking at as part of this project. So there's, there's a lot going on. Have you got a few years to do this? Yeah, this has um, just started. It's a, it's a new three-year program, and we're just starting in the first year. Um, but uh, this this will uh, be a long-term um, uh, endeavour. So a long-term journey. This will be um, what will be the start of uh, many, many years of um, trial and error. 
or building up the knowledge and uh, information that we need to 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 know and to undertake successful restoration. Uh, what I always like to do is compare this to the terrestrial restoration space, who are very successful these days at restoring the terrestrial environment. And seagrass and, and marine environments in general have a very poor history. Corals, mangroves, seagrass, very difficult to restore. But you've got to remember, we're still a relatively new science. And compared to terrestrial restoration, they went through many, many decades of early failures. But they learned from those failures. They learned what worked, what didn't work, and understood why um, things failed. And that's the process we're going through at the moment with our marine environments, understanding um, our failures and learning from those uh, things that don't work to, to develop the tools and knowledge that allows us to undertake um, large-scale restoration into the future. Well, that means that hopefully over the next three years we'll be able to keep in touch with you and you'll be able to share your successes and losses. And I think you'll be successful when people start ringing the council and complaining about all the seagrass rack that's washing up on the beach because <laughs> there's too much of it. Thanks for your time today, Craig, and we'll keep in touch with you as the project develops. Thank, Thank yeah. you, Craig. Thanks, Dr Beach. Yeah, thanks very much for coming on, Craig. That was um, Dr. Craig Sherman from Deakin University talking about seagrass restoration in Port Phillip Bay. I'm going to go to... Western Port Bay. In, in Western Port Bay. Or Western Port. Somebody pulled me up before. We shouldn't actually say just, Western Port. Just, just Western, Western Port. Port. And just like it's Port Phillip. There ain't no Port Phillip Bay. It's Port Phillip and it's Western Port. But, you know, who cares? <laughs> I don't know. Why did I move that up? Obviously, I care. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go to a track now which um, I heard Shorty playing on Wednesday afternoon when she was doing a fill-in for Mon on Out on the Patio. It was a very beautiful song. Uh, and this is um, Alara doing Walla is Life. <sighs> Walla is Life. Walla falls from sky. Rain beginning of life like our kinship ties in mother earth's eyes river banks flow wide fingerling swim wild making mother moon smile hasn't rained in a while walla is blood walla gives flood walla is life gotta get law right limitless undercurrents pushing pulling Gliding, sliding, mulling Trickles from the nipples of sacred springs It's an animal thing In the gubber side, in the 
disposal to freeze, plants to make you sneeze, downpours, thunderstorms, temps above the norm, bees will cease to swarm and our ocean far too warm. It's an animal thing, made to give us wings. Of the gum site, endless supply, the gum site, endless gum site, endless gum site, endless supply, endless supply, endless supply, endless supply, endless supply. After the rain. After the rain, the river flows. After the rain, the river flows. After the rain, the river flows. That very beautiful song was by Alara. And as I said, thanks, Shorty, for putting me onto that in your beautiful fill in for Mon on Wednesday afternoon. And, um, yeah, Walla means water and yorta yorta. And um, speaking of Indigenous languages, it's NADOC week this week and today we have a special broadcast. It's called Still Here Live at Triple R. We've just had a couple of free um, free spots open up and the doors open here at 11.30 at Triple R in East Brunswick, so in two hours' time. You don't need to call in if you want to come up. You don't need to phone in, but you just rock up here with your subscriber card at 11.30 for... Um, the um, still here live broadcast. That's what I'll be doing. Yeah, I think I might hang around for that too. Uh, we're very lucky to have Dave Donnelly from Dolphin Research on the phone with us now from Phillip Island at the Phillip Island Whale Festival. Dave, how are you going this morning? Good morning, gentlemen. I'm doing very well. How are you? Uh, we're well here. Exceptionally nice and, well, Dave. Yeah, nice and cosy in the studio. Might be a bit different down there at Phillip Island. How is it there? It is absolutely beautiful down here and has been for the whole weekend. I can give you a surf report if you like. I do. We're <laughs> going to have Dr. Surf giving us a report later on. But yeah, you, you do I give another surf well, report. This is we'll see, we'll we'll see get, how it compares. We get two separate sources and we see if they're the same. Yeah. Well, Dr. Surf is uh, not on site. So I'm going to give you the Cape Woolamite surf report. The tide's currently out and we've got some lovely, lovely waves peeling off and a lot of surfers down here right now. Uh, enjoying those waves. Um, sadly, though, um, not many whales behind them at this point. Right, that was my next thought. I, you know, I, I, I was trying to envision, like, envision sort of surfers, waves breaking, and you've got the whales sort of breaching behind, but disappointingly none this morning. But there have been quite a few around, haven't there, lately, in the last couple of weeks? There certainly have, and, and yesterday we had the same situation, a lot of surfers surfing and quite a few whales passing by in the background. So, you know, it, it is wildlife at times you see nothing and other times you see a lot and uh, we've been very fortunate this weekend with a lot of whales and a lot of people helping us spot those whales cool what sort of what sort of whales uh, predominantly humpback whales this weekend though we have had southern right whales hanging around the island for for about four or five days prior to the festival starting but they decided they were not interested in the festival and uh, shunted out of the area <laughs> so the festival what does it entail dave so it goes for several days a week the, the sausage sizzle yeah. 
It's a three-day festival focused around, um, obviously, the whales, but we have a, a whole range of different um, uh, outlets here, including um, government organisation, non-government organisation, community groups. Uh, we have film screening of Map to Paradise last night. We've got on-site uh, spotter whale sessions, which we're in the midst of as we speak. And we also have whale watch vessels circumnavigating the island uh, looking for whales. So it's, uh, it's an all-in um, event, and it's all ages. We've got big education sessions with an 18-metre life-size climb-inside inflatable whale. And, <laughs> oh, that's uh, fun. This, <laughs> this particular... Uh, this particular festival, we've had uh, already had over 2,000 people through, and we've still got all of today to go. So... This is obviously a bit of a kick-off to the whale season, but I think it began a little bit early this year. There have been many sightings so far this year? Yeah, so the sightings have been quite good this year. We've had a lot of people uh, putting in a fair bit of effort, so we've got to balance that against the number of whales. But uh, we're over 115 sighting events for the season so far, and in total uh, in our data set we have approaching 900 sighting events in uh, in the data set which only includes the two bays regions not including all the other coastlines so it's uh, it's quite impressive now and the whales are contributing very well to that with their numbers i'm glad you mentioned the data set there dave because i've been i know that this is part of the work that you do or a very important part of the work is accumulating all these data on the, on the numbers of and the different sightings and that how's that going and, and, and is it sort of how the numbers shaping up Look, um, what we're seeing is a very strong correlation with what we know from the east coast of Australia. We're seeing a, a very steady increase in humpback whale numbers at about 9 or 10% per annum. Um, and the other thing that's consistent is the, the uh, non-recovery of southern right whales, uh, still down below 400 individuals within that southeast Australia subpopulation. So a bit, bit of a concern there for the southern rights and uh, lots of applause for the humpback whales doing so well. Any ideas about why, why the, the southern rights are not rebounding to um, with the same kind of you know verve that the, the humpback humpbacks are? Because that is quite a famous thing. I mean, the humpbacks are really are coming back. It's wonderful to see you say these numbers like nine to ten percent a year is just really heartening, but but sad with the southern rights. Yeah, look, the, the humpback whales is a fantastic um, recovery story. Um, it's all about conservation and the. Uh, ceasing whaling in our country and uh, the preservation of that species. So it's a really good example of how we can do good stuff with, with uh, conservation of wildlife. Uh, sadly, though, the southern right whales, which are, are slow to, to reproduce um, and are also very, very slow-moving and low-profile in the water, make them very susceptible to things like ship strike and, and uh, disturbance. And also they're, they're carving in areas where we also have a bit of uh, interaction with commercial fisheries and other things like that close to shore. So there are quite a few risks that are posed to southern right whales that may not be as... Uh, much of a risk to other species such as humpback whales. So there's a few contributing factors uh, we think there, but uh, I believe there's a paper coming out later this year which will explain a little bit more about that, that subpopulation of southern right whales. So I look forward to, to reading that. Oh, you'll have to come and fill us in when that comes around. Now, just this, back to the, uh, the festival, is this just a recruitment drive, Dave? for your project. <laughs> That's very cynical of you, Kate. <laughs> no, I, in the best way possible. I, I'm actually quite impressed with the amount of effort that goes into... But not just. Sorry, the just probably undersold, but I'm actually very impressed with it. And do you find that you get a lot more sightings after this event? Because you've been running for quite a few years now and it's sort of grown every year. Is that actually helping you with your collection of data? It's 
certainly is. And you're right, Kate. It is a fantastic way to recruit people. We, we deliver a presentation each day um, about the citizen science and how people can contribute because so many people are really interested in how they can contribute to the conservation of these animals. And their reward is being notified of sightings and being able to get to places where they can see whales easily. So there's a, there's a beautiful um, complete circle there where we can bring people into the mix and they can get something out of as much as we do and, of course, the whales. So, yeah, the festival started in 2016 um, at a little idea between three people, two of my colleagues and myself, and we attracted about 500 people. We now attract more than 500 people a day and we've actually handed the festival over to the, the uh, destination Phillip Island, who are the tourism guys down here at Phillip Island, the Basque Coast Shire, and they essentially do all the logistics for the festival and we fill in a few components underneath that. But, yeah, it's a great success story. It's probably the biggest festival, in uh, a whale festival in Victoria. There's another one on the West Coast as well. And we're starting to rival other festivals around the country um, with the penguins here, the seals, the whales, the bird life, and, as you know, the coastline. Um, it's a beautiful mix, and we just can't wait to see where it goes from here. I, I just wanted to quickly point out that you don't have to go to the festival to help with the citizen science aspect of it. If you're listening at home and you're not down there, if you ever see a whale, you can submit your photos. And where do you submit your photos to? Let's ask Dave. Well, we, we have a few ways you can submit photos and sighting uh, information, and, and that's via our Facebook page, which is Two Bays Whale Project. And we also have a uh, web-based application or web-based app which doesn't require you to... Uh, use any data on your phone or sign in or log in or log out or any or new passwords or anything it's simply a link and it's at the dolphin research institute website and just look for PodWatch, how to report your sightings save it to your home screen and away you go beautiful excellent thank you very much for that dave dave it's been fantastic to talk to you um thank you very much and um Really nice to hear that it's going well with the um, Phillip Island Whale Festival, although the whales aren't being so cooperative this morning. They're just kind of hanging below the surface, I'd imagine. But, um, they'll be there they soon. Will, they'll be back this afternoon. Don't you worry about that, Dr. <laughs> uh, we, we can We can say for sure that we think there'll be whales around this area and we're hoping to see them at 11.30 at Pyramid Rock. 11.30 Pyramid Rock, fantastic. <laughs> so everybody get down there. So if you're not coming into the Triple R studio to um, listen to Still Here, then um, get down to Phillip Island for 11.30 when the whales are going to arrive. Thanks again, Dave. Um, that, was Dave you, Donnelly. that was Dave Donnelly from Dolphin Research at the Phillip Island Whale Festival. Uh, we're very fortunate. Now, even though we've already had a surf report, we're going to get another one from our very own, and don't we love him a lot, Dr. Surf. How are you going? G'day, Beach. How are you going? <laughs> I'm very well. We got a few couple of bubbles there. It sounded yeah. like you were either under the bath or down in um, down by the in the water. Are you? No, I think what it is is I'm sitting on the couch with the dog, and my puppy's decided that, that licking me is the best fun in the world, and he's spent the whole morning licking me. So he's trying to lick the phone at the moment. Oi! Oi! Anyway, look, he's a good dog, but it's just a bit annoying. I don't. I'm not really, you know, up for Labrador licking it early in the morning. Right, okay, yeah. No, you need to go for a surf to wash surf. it off, Dr. Surf. <laughs> well, it's a bit of a disappointing morning because it's perfect conditions, really light wind, offshore, but hardly any waves. It's a like waist high at the best. And there's, the banks down here aren't that good. They're probably better down Willamai Way. But look, there's it's beautiful conditions there's little waves if you've got a very long board or a very short one 
You'd want to get down pretty soon, though, because in these sort of conditions, as the tide comes in, it just swallows up the swell and the waves just stop breaking. And it's, as you said, it's pretty much low tide now, so I would be heading down now for a nice quiet surf, but you'll probably have quite a few um, friends out in the water. Well, that's all right. It's all, you know, we like, we like that, don't we? Yeah, it's not it's not worth hassling about waves that are, you know, tiny. Well, but look, it's um, it's you know, it's not too bad, and it's um, we had some great waves during the week. Tuesday morning was epic, all time. So there's no complaints. Nothing. But it, it's not looking too good for the next few days. Unfortunately, it's going to stay small, and the wind's going to turn around more northwest. So the typical uh, surfer, you should have been here a couple of days ago. Well, you should have been here half an hour ago. Yeah. <laughs> That's the standard line. Well, you really missed it. <laughs> you were saying anyway, about a few a few friends right. being out. I saw some recent footage up on the Gold Coast of about 500 friends all sitting at one surf break. So I don't think we've got too much to worry about. We should still celebrate oh, no. our small crowds. No, absolutely. And during the week, honestly, Tuesday was as good as it gets and there was only six of us. So... No, no complaints at all. We're very blessed down here. But as I said, with the school holidays on, there'll be little waves, but there's a chance of a bigger swell coming in around Thursday. So I'm just wondering what to do. I was actually out in the garden doing some gardening when you rang, and I I thought, I've already done it for 20 minutes and I'm bored out of my brain, so I might just have to go for a surf. Yeah, I think you're going to have to do that as well. Um, before you yeah. do that, I'm going to play you. Um, well, I'm going to thank you for giving this report, and I've got a special song for you here. This is um, from Bill Callahan's latest album. Um, so I'm going to let you go so you can switch, um, get off the phone, you can turn up the radio. And this is called Black Dog on the Beach. It made me think of you, <laughs> Dr. Surf. <laughs> thank you very much, Beach. <laughs> See you, Kate. See you, Dr. Surf. See you, Surf. See ya. Ah, this show is Radio Marinara. The program uh, well the, uh, yeah the show is radio Mara. the station is three triple r my name's dr beach and i'm joined in the studio by kate kate's still here kate is still here and yeah. kate's paneling for us this morning kate um you're someone that spends a lot of time in the water and you will be you know you kind of be conscious when you're around the edge how you get lots of shade and stuff and it's a little bit cooler there have you ever thought about what happens to the plankton and the seaweed in those areas you preempt me that was actually something i was going to ask our next guest about (laughs) basically taking an obvious observation that most people have probably overlooked completely so no is the answer i have not and that's why the next guest is going to be fascinating well that's right let's cut straight to martino maleba from monash university who is hanging there on the phone with us martino thank you very much for joining us and welcome to radio marinara Thanks, thanks. Uh, great to be here. <laughs> I read your, um, your, well, I was alerted to the paper that you published recently in an article that you and your colleagues wrote from, from Monash in the conversation during the week. And this was, it was really fascinating for me as somebody who, like a lot of our listeners, has spent time in our very own Port Phillip um, or anywhere in the water. And, you know, you, you have shade around the edge under piers. It's nice for people to dive under piers and all of those things. You see lots of beautiful invertebrates, obsidians, all these colourful things on the pylons. But I have never once stopped to think, hang on, with all of this structure, what's happening to the photosynthetic organisms? So tell us about the work that you're doing in these wonderful, this wonderful group set of studies that you've just published. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, exactly uh, as you were saying in, in Portfolio Bay, the, the the problem is quite uh, it's quite clear. Um, I remember, for example, when I first arrived in Melbourne three years ago, 
when I went to Brighton, uh, the Brighton Marina, and at the base of the pylons, you could see very clearly these large structures of uh, calcium carbonate that it's basically made all of uh, polychaetes and, and muscles. And, um, and so I, I started to wonder what, what the impact would be of, of, those, of those large filter feeder community that seem to be very strongly associated just with artificial structures. And, um, and so we started wondering the impact, and we, we traveled around a bit, and we went to Queensland, to Moreton Bay, and also there we started to quantify the, the area that is taken up by artificial structures and how they offer kind of like um, a large surface area for filter feeders to attach. Uh, I, w I went to Obart, and also in Obart, like you can see that around the, around the, 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 um, the port, you can see a lot of uh, muscles uh, building up on on the side of uh, piers and pontoons. And so, and so we sort of wondered why 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 they were so favored by artificial structures, and how come they seem to uh, build up such high densities. And the, the the hypothesis that we put forward in the paper is that when whenever we build artificial structures, we tend to uh, increase the, the surface area that is made of hard substrate like concrete, and and that's that's a premium in in many environments for filter feeder organisms. Uh, finding a free patch of ocean it, it, it's quite hard, and so whenever we build uh, artificial structures, we basically increase the 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 possibility for filter feeders to 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 colonize new area, and, I guess and, and this, that's one aspect. And mm -hmm. I, I guess this gets at the heart of also is a, a lot of mariculture where people you know put out sort of bits of wood and th things like racks for oysters and all of that. Yes. But by putting in pylons, we've got the muscles jumping on there. So uh -huh. Yep, yep, yep. Except that here we have a second aspect that plays an important role. Whenever we put a pier, we at the same like we offer uh, a lot of hard substrate, but at the same time we also tend to reduce reduce the amount of light that can penetrate inside the water because they are usually overshaded these structures. And this means that not just we offer um, hard structures, but also we kind of create an environment where photosynthetic organisms such as algae, that are the usual competitors of uh, filter feeders, tend to have a hard time to, to, to colonize because uh, the, there is less opportunity for photosynthesis. And so this, uh, the combination of low light and hard structures uh, create the perfect habitat for filter feeders to just develop, flourish, and create these very unusual high densities, in a way. And we see that as well, well, in lots of places. I'm, I'm thinking we've, we've talked a lot here about the sponge relocation project at um, at Blegari, and there were you know very mm -hmm. beautiful sponges there on the piers. And as you said, when we build these concrete structures, it's the perfect substrate for these organisms. So, we're, so we've got the, the, the photosynthetic organisms, the seaweeds, and also uh, don't, let's not forget the microalgae, the phytoplankton. Um, but with so, what, are, the, you know, are you predicting, do you hypothesise any kind of long-term effects of us having this, you know, greater shading as we, as we you know, build more uh -huh. and more as we want to do as humans? Um, what's the future hold for yeah. all of this? Right, so, so, right, so this is an impact that um, has gone pretty much completely unrecognised up until today. So our study um, at the kind of gave the first try at trying to uh, attract attention to this 
this potential indirect implication of uh, artificial structures. And we started quantifying how much, what type of impact we're talking about. And so we went on Google Maps and we tried to evaluate, quantify the the extent, the amount of area that is offered by artificial structures in uh, Prospect Bay in Victoria, together with um, Moreton Bay in Queensland. And we estimated that these two bays offer a new habitat for around um, uh, for an area that is the equivalent of uh, 50, 50 soccer pitches. Just to give uh, something that can easily be pictured. We, we were talking so, about that before, um, Kate and I. It's, it's, it's great the nomenclature you're using, soccer pitches and all of that. It's very, um, it, it immediately um, you know, evokes a, a very nice image for us. Yeah, yeah, we were we were wondering whether to use EFL pitches, but because they're larger and the number is is less, and so we stick with soccer because it's, <laughs> it's also what I play. So, yeah. so, uh, so we estimated that in this fifty soccer pitches worth of uh, artificial structure, uh, it's on average you find around twenty thirty kilograms of uh, fouling biomass, and so all together in both um, Moreton Bay and Port Phillip Bay, you expect to have around 3,000 elephants worth of filter feeder biomass that are strictly associated with artificial structures. And the key point is that these 3,000 elephants worth of filter feeders would not exist wasn't for artificial structures that we put in the bay. And so the point is uh, we have this kind of herd of elephants that we, in a way, created in a in a way the indirect way, and we have little idea of the implications that this big biomass has on the environment. And now, one and of the sorry, one of the things I love yeah. about these herd of elephants that you're talking about, um, and one of the um, I guess things you talk about in the conclusion is we still don't know whether this is a good and a bad thing and then location and where you are and um, productivity Mm -hmm. of an area can really vary whether this is a positive or a negative effect. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so the most immediate effect of uh, this biomass is that they eat a lot. And so they... It's estimated that a a normal average uh, meter square of um, uh, muscle bed, so a a one-by-one meter patch, uh, would filter the equivalent of an Olympic uh, pool worth of water in a matter of less than a month. And uh, and every day, these muscles tend to filter out all the nutrients that they find in, in this large amount of water. So they filter out uh, the, the primary productivity in the water that is mostly the phytoplankton. And so you have uh, phytoplankton being produced in the water column, and then these uh, filter feeders that just uh, strip all the phytoplankton out. And at the other end, you just get uh, water with uh, no nutrients. So um, this is the first implication. Now, now, whether it's good or bad, it depends on the situation, because on one side, clearly, uh, phytoplankton is, uh, is, is the base, represents the base of the food chain. So the more phytoplankton you have, the more life you can get out of the ocean. Uh, because uh, all, all the rest of the food chain uh, indirectly rely on phytoplankton being created. Now, um, if you remove the phytoplankton, usually you remove most of the rest of the food chain. So I'm talking about fisheries uh, being reliable, reli- being 
um, directly linked to how much phytoplankton you have. But at the same time, you know, in um, in today's world, we also tend to boost phytoplankton productivity to unreasonable levels due to fertilizers and agriculture. Uh, we put a lot of nitrogen and phosphorus out in the water from uh, um, uh, from all the crops uh, grown around. Uh, yeah, the, the fa- farm, farming we want to do yeah. and all of that, yeah. Exactly, yes, yes. And sometimes this leads to negative consequences, such as algal blooms. Yeah. Algal blooms is algae going out of control. Yeah. And so these filter feeders might help to keep phytoplankton production on check. We, we just don't know. So in some cases it's good, in some cases it's bad. That's right. Yeah, it, it's, it's, the more you think about it, it, it's, it could be a very good thing. We're actually getting rid of lots of phytoplankton, which we need to remind the audience, you know, even though they can bloom, that they're, they're good things. There are a couple that will, um, if they accumulate in shellfish, are not good. But, um, yeah, it, it's, it's quite fascinating. Yeah, I've, I've heard the idea sort of thrown around as far as... Um, a lot of the marinas that you have in various places have a lot of still water and a lot of um, not much turnover or flushing and stuff like that. And the idea of actually putting invertebrates and filter feeders into these places or encouraging mm-hmm. their growth is actually one of the ways to help with this water circulation and to take some of these nutrients out. Is that something that mm-hmm. you've, you've looked at with this work? Obviously, that's where you made your first observations was at marinas, but is it something that can be encouraged in marinas? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. I'd say there is a lot of scope for future research here, again, because this is one of the first few studies that look at the implications of uh, uh, filter feeders associated with artificial structures. But yeah, you can extend it to uh, a lot uh, more studies looking further at uh, what happens as you um, increase surface area, uh, you change, you manipulate the nutrients in the environment, and you also manipulate the amount of light that penetrates through the water. Uh, there are, there are um, debates on whether we should change the way we design marinas or artificial structures, because in a way they could still serve the purpose that we want them to, uh, even while allowing more light to penetrate through. Like you can imagine some kind of a see-through piers or like trying to find new materials that can at the same time uh, allow the, the normal community to flourish without favoring too much one type or another, uh, while also being able to um, being used to, to, to boating and all the other recreational purposes that we want them to. Yep. I just had one quick question for you. The different invertebrates, do they filter different amounts of water? So do you know how much a worm filters compared to an ascidian, mm-hmm. compares to a mussel? Um, do they, does that change? Uh, yeah, yeah. Each one will have its own, uh, you know, uh, its, its own physiology, and, and it depends on a lot of things. So, for example, we know that mussels are those that tend to filter the most amount of water. Um, uh, polychids less, but also there is such a great diversity that it, it, it's all dependent on a species-specific basis. It, there is a lot of variability there. Um, Martino, this is fantastic work and I'd love to chat more with you about this but unfortunately we've got to get away f- uh, move out of here for another radio program the doctors are coming in um, Martino Maleba, thank you very much for joining us um, from Monash University talking about the shading and um, yeah, daylight robbery one can call it <laughs> and, Thank um, you so much, it was great We'd love to, get, love to get you on later on to hear about a, an update on this, so thank you very much Sure
Have a good day. Bye. Yeah, thank you. See you, Martino. Okay, we better get out of here. Um, that's about it for Radio Marinara for today. I'd like to thank Craig Sherman. Uh, I'd like to thank you, Kay. Kay, I'd like to thank Kent, uh, Martina Malurba, and also Dave Donnelly from um, Dolphin Research, who was on the phone to us from, um, from Phillip Island. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.